Hello everyone, it's October 23rd, 2018. This week we got a little more info on what that Soyuz abort means for the future of the ISS, and we got a correction burn on what we got wrong about that Soyuz abort last week. But we love those correction burns, they keep us in the right orbit, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 181 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Sorry, I almost laughed there because, Ben, did, did you just burp? In fact, I might leave that in. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so um, I've been buying, like, seltzers and drinking them during the show because, I don't know, I'm an idiot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just drinking tea. I got my coffee. I've got an iced tea ready to go. It's just, it's still steeping. So do you ever drink um, for fun? This is weird. I used to do this a long time ago. Do you ever drink tonic water? No, hmm. uh, oh. not without vodka or gin. gin. Yeah. And that is typically what you would put in it. But I kind of yeah. like tonic water, but I like strange tasting things. I like bitter <laughs> stuff. Oh, yeah. Um. So I found a, uh, I found a funny drink at a local shop that I need to go back and buy and send to uh, Carrie Nugent for her show. That's like the, what'd you call it? Uh, the theme or the... It's like the intro get, like the, it's like a bit that she does. I don't want to say it's mm. a gimmick because that sounds, you know, <laughs> a yeah. little bit pejorative. Yeah, it's a, it's but a yeah. bit, yeah. Yeah, so what is the drink? Uh, you know what? I genuinely don't remember. I was just, <laughs> just thinking about funny tasting <laughs> drinks and I saw something... Like, oh, I gotta go back and get that. Whatever it was, it was funny looking. It was at a place with like the rice jelly drinks and things like that, but there was one that Ooh. I was like, oh, that looks, I've never seen that one before. Let me, I gotta go back and get some. I'm not familiar with a rice jelly drink. Is this like a drink that has little bits of rice oh, I'm jelly sorry. in it? Uh, not, not rice, uh, grass jelly. Okay, well, I don't know what Ooh, that is even either. Stranger. <laughs> yeah, what is grass jelly? So it's, it's, it's gelatin made from a plant uh it's it's a mint family plant oh wow um, called libiate i just googled that is dark yeah yeah the the jelly comes out i mean it really looks like oxidized plant juice right mm. and i've never super enjoyed it but some people do i've seen those drinks you can get that have like little bits of i guess like the aloe plant that but i, I don't think it's mm -hmm. jelly I, I think it's just the aloe yeah, from like the aloe flesh. plant uh -huh, yeah, yeah yeah strange i wonder if she's done one of those uh i i'm pretty sure she has that's a great idea for again just like do a show but also you know you drink something new i mean i would love to do something like that but that seems like a lot of work so, <laughs> yeah to do and that we also publish way more often than she does yeah <laughs> We should probably do like a month where we just drink a new beer like once every episode. That would be fun. Yeah, we could we could like order mixed cases online and yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of craft places right near me. Well, they're everywhere. I mean, these days, geez, there's craft beer is not in short supply. That's everywhere you well, go. Well, I'm sure we could get uh, wavelength to send us some more beer. I'm all for that. Anyway, all right, that was a fun digression. But let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So we have, I think, just. One winner. Yeah, yeah. One winner at the very last minute. Valentin Frank, congratulations. You're the only person who got it. He sent in his guess literally this morning, and that makes me very, very happy. Oh, wow. So the clue from last week was looking down the barrel, and this week in spaceflight history is October 26th, 2004. And it's a tough one. It was Cassini's first Titan flyby. So my my thinking here was, you know, you're looking down the barrel, you're taking your first glance at Titan flying away and then coming back and eventually 
uh, releasing Huygens to land uh, on the surface of Titan. And this flyby uh, was very, very close, but as you'd expect, it was very, very fast. So uh, Cassini came in at a minimum altitude of 730 miles or just over 1,100 kilometers, which is very low, right? Like that's... Mm -hmm what, like three times higher than the ISS is from, from Earth. But the speed was insane. So it was 13,000 miles per hour or 6.1 kilometers per second. So really, really screaming past. So everybody loves Cassini and everybody was bummed when Cassini ended its mission. But I feel like not enough attention gets paid to Huygens. And, you know, some people actually forget that the entire mission was Cassini-Huygens uh, mm -hmm. until, you know, Huygens took off. So... Um, Huygens landed on Titan uh, on January 14th, 2005. So the flyby happened in October. Originally, Huygens was scheduled to land in December, but they ended up pushing it back to January. And I'll tell you about that in a little bit. So Huygens was intended to just capture data as it drifted down through the atmosphere. And then they were hoping maybe after it lands, we'll be able to get some extra data. But they weren't sure if it was going to land on land or land in the water. They, you know, made it float, uh, mm -hmm. you know, low density enough that it actually float. But, you know, they, they weren't sure what they were going to get instead in classic robotic fashion huygens landed and continued to transmit data for 90 minutes um so just blowing expectations out of the water uh as it were or the blowing expectations out of the methane lake <laughs> we almost didn't get any data back from huygens though like literally any data because uh, the thing is that the receiver on cassini cassini was going to uh, rebroadcast the data back to Earth. This receiver mm -hmm. uh, wasn't built in such a way that it could account for the Doppler shift. And if we could have updated the firmware, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, but after it had, you know, after it had left, uh, there was no way to actually update the firmware. So effectively, Cassini would have been listening on one band. Uh, Huygens would have been transmitting on a slightly different band. And Cassini just never would have been able to hear the difference. If I remember correctly, wasn't the, uh, I think this was caught by like an engineer who just was doing some like checks yeah. that he didn't really have to do. Yeah, there were, there were two engineers who were like, Hey guys, this might be an issue. And, uh, they finally pushed hard enough that, uh, we started doing tests. Um, basically Earth pretended to be Huygens talking to Cassini, um, at different Doppler shift. Uh, factors or different Doppler shift pitches, and they confirmed what the uh, what the engineers were afraid of was that yeah we're not going to get any data back. So here's the really cool thing: this is kind of a space hack. They couldn't update the firmware, so what they did was they found a different trajectory, and they ended up launching Huygens uh, a month later. And so instead of Huygens flying directly away from Cassini as it went into the Titan atmosphere, which would maximize its Doppler shift. They changed the trajectory so that it flew into Titan's atmosphere perpendicular to its line of sight back to Cassini. And that, that minimizes the Doppler shift, right? It's the mm -hmm. difference between uh, an ambulance driving straight at you and an ambulance on the highway a mile away driving past you. There's a big difference there. And that actually did successfully solve the problem. Cassini was able to hear all the data coming back. But there was another problem, and this was literally a programming issue. Um, they went back and looked 
and they forgot to turn on channel A. So Cassini listened to Huygens on two different channels, A and B, and the software just simply didn't start listening to channel A. So it listened to channel B, but never recorded anything from, uh, or it, it listened to channel B, but never recorded anything from channel A, which is so bizarre that that we could miss something like that. But this this kind of little Mickey Mouse problem happens over and over and over um, just because, you know, humans aren't perfect and we bring in assumptions. And mm-hmm. so anyway, we lost some data. We didn't lose all the data. For the most part, all of the experiments were the experimental data was duplicated on both channels. Um, so we were able to get all but one experiment. The one experiment that we lost um, was a Doppler wind speed experiment where uh, channel A had a very specific modulation. I don't know if it was AM or FM, but it had a, a very particular modulation uh, that made it easy to see the Doppler shift. And so you could very precisely measure the speed difference between Cassini and Huygens, um, which would allow us to very precisely measure the winds that Huygens was floating through uh, in Titan's atmosphere. Uh, mm-hmm. So that one was was totally lost. Um, the other thing that we lost were, were photos. So the photos were not duplicated on both channels. I suspect that it's because they um, didn't have enough bandwidth to transmit all the photos twice. So instead, they alternated back and forth. And since we lost one channel, we lost half the photos. So they intended to get something like seven or 800 photos, and we you know, only got half of that. But I mean, we did get some really cool photos right because gorgeous I'm photos oh, yeah it's weird because it's hard to imagine that and i guess this is just it's just a weird perceptual thing but it's these photos are mostly like red and kind of orangey looking mm-hmm. and it makes it look like it's very hot but it's not it's right. quite the opposite <laughs> it's very, freezing very cold. cold on titan yeah but it looks like it's on the surface of mercury or something it kind of looks marsy to me i mean that's the thing is that rocks is rocks and like the more bodies that we visit we don't have hollywood sets out there in space we just have deserts you know <laughs> and so uh with star trek re- you know filming in deserts so often they i mean they probably have the most realistic looking sets you know that's a good point all right so that's awesome and congratulations valentin so what is our clue for next week all right i got kind of a long clue here and this we we cut this down as well but i think this is probably the the fair amount to do All right next week in 1957 the clue is a crash landing in the mojave desert after a 31 hour flight 900 miles into space the ship with the men who flew her disappeared from the radar screen for 24 hours mm. yeah mm. that's a mysterious clue <laughs> interesting yeah, okay very mysterious well if you think you know what that's about uh, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody All right, on to the news. We have an update on Soyuz, or at least a little bit of one, I guess, because yeah. I don't know if there's that much new to add, though, really, but you have some stuff here that you put in, Ben. So what have you found out that the rest of us don't know? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Uh, so, yeah, I was I was really hoping that we were going to have the, uh, you know, some good preliminary data out, but I suspect that the rumors that we put forth last week uh, are going to hold true. Anyway, so um, one of the interesting new things that we learned, Nick Haig did an interview and he talked about the abort and he mentioned something that was really interesting. He said that um, they got up to um, booster separation and they were expecting a little bit of a jerk, but instead uh, they got a bunch of lateral back and forth and then the booster failure light turned on. So from what he's saying, it actually turns out that 
the lateral motion that we saw in the video wasn't the booster hitting the first stage. That was actually the abort motors firing. And so we got a little clip of those astronauts after the abort motors had started and they had separated from the rest of the spacecraft. But for, for the folks inside the vehicle, they had no indication that any failure had happened until the abort uh, actually began, which is fantastic, right? Like if you are going to abort, you don't want to know anything about it. You want to know after your computer has made a, a, a decision that's faster than you could ever press a button, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Right. So Sam Moore in the chat um, just gave us a couple links that will go in the show notes. And this is fantastic. Anatoly Zak, who's uh, a Russian space reporter, um, actually came up with some interesting data this week. Uh, I don't know if it's considered data, but uh, it sounds like the investigation is focusing around the handling of the booster. It's It sounds like when they were um, lifting the booster, they actually damaged a sensor on the side. So it's the separation sensor that tells the uh, oxygen port up at the top to begin venting uh, to flip the top end of the booster away. So this is an, you know, an operator error and not a manufacturing error, which is a very important distinction if we're going to put faith in the system. Um, it kind of sucks that we're seeing a lot of operator error, uh, you know, relatively speaking. <laughs> so, so maybe this is a personnel issue where we need to get tighter restrictions on who can actually work on these vehicles and what their training is and what their update training is. But yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's an interesting conclusion. There does seem to be that recurring theme that it's not so much the manufacturing of the hardware, but it's how it's handled afterward. You know, mm -hmm. so like going back to the abort, why do you think when the abort motor fired that we even saw that side to side shaking? Because I would have thought that they would have been pinned back in their seats. You know, because they're going to be experiencing some pretty high G's. I mean, just for a second, but yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting that they kind of shook back and forth, or maybe that was after the actual initial abort happened, you know, and I'm talking about like just a second afterwards. Uh, I mean, those abort, I think those abort motors fire long enough that, 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 that's not what we saw, right? I think, I think that phase lasts too long for us to have, you know, just seen a clip of it afterwards. Right. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, the fact that you are now suddenly riding on solid rockets, the fact that they are, you know, next to you instead of behind you. I don't know. Those dynamics um, seem like they could be kind of complicated. Well, that's a good point because if they're next to you and they don't have exactly equal thrust or maybe they don't. I mean, they had to have ignited at pretty much the exact same moment. Otherwise, it would have been a very different escape. But um, yeah, just a slight variance there might have accounted for that because it, it seemed like a very shaky ride in a lateral direction, which kind of surprised me. I thought, like everyone else, that that was, you know, the side booster coming down on the first stage mm -hmm. or the, I'm sorry, the second stage, but yeah, so that's not what it was. That's, that's interesting. There's also some more information about how this is impacting, you know, the rest of the ISS uh, ecosystem. Um, so getting dragon up and running may actually be an alternative uh, more so than I expected last week. So it sounds like dragon is hardware ready at this point that, you know, it's passed all of its hardware readiness reviews and it's good to go. What's holding Dragon back right now is safety checks 
and you know basically paperwork basically a lot of things that can be sped up if you throw money at the problem of course you know there there are going to be some things that can't be sped up because they're you know safety checks that are based on performance over time uh, you know reaction loads over time but for a lot of this stuff it sounds like it's ready to go the other main issue is a policy issue uh, falcon 9 is not crew rated it hasn't yet flown with its upgraded carbon overwrapped pressure vessels which would solve the Amos 6 explosion issue, right? So right now they've solved that issue with procedures, right? They just load, they load the liquid oxygen in a different way. Um, I, I think they put the helium in first and then the oxygen. I don't remember what the, what the change they made was, but they solved it procedurally. They're also going to solve it in hardware and totally negate the chance of that ever happening again. But before they do that, NASA wants them to fly seven flights with no changes to Falcon 9. Um, and since they haven't switched over to those upgraded COPVs, they haven't flown a single one of those seven flights that NASA requires. So NASA may decide to change the way that they're crew rating Falcon 9. Uh, I kind of hope that they don't because I don't want to live in a world where decrewing ISS is enough to get NASA to change its safety considerations or the, the decisions it's made. Also, um, at, at very best, uh, Crew Dragon is one flight away from actually being able to fly because they still need to do their in-flight abort test. So that would need to happen, but that's you know something that could happen presumably fairly quickly. And then the the flip side of this is if we end up decrewing station, it's actually going to delay getting commercial crew up and running um, because the first uncrewed flight of both Crew Dragon and CST-100 um, need to happen with crew on board the station so that they can dock uh, and the crew can do all their monitoring activities and, and confirm that the vehicle's good to go. Um, oh yeah, so I guess that'd be that'd be two flights that Crew Dragon would need to do before I can carry people, but you know whatever. So yeah, if we end up decrewing station, we could be pushing commercial crew back even farther, which is a little counterintuitive, but you know makes sense once you think about it. Right. So about the COPV thing, you you said because I don't remember now, you said that they haven't done any launches with the new COPV tanks. Yep. Okay, I thought that they had. I don't know why I'm thinking that. So when are they planning on beginning to integrate those things? I don't know. They talked about how uh, Block 5 was basically the configuration they're going to use. It just hadn't had the the upgraded COPVs. So I, I'm assuming the next flight of Block 5, I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously they they just had a launch and that was a Block 5. Yeah, I don't I don't know when their when their planes were. I don't think I've ever heard a good answer. To kind of summarize then, what 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 seems to be the most likely scenario with what's going to be happening with our people up there? Uh, the uh, empty Soyuz. I I think that they're gonna fly uh full Soyuz. I don't. I mean, depending on what the actual investigation comes out with. If this was just an issue handling the vehicle, there's no way to increase your confidence in the vehicle, right? Because it's ground mm -hmm. crews that you're worrying about. So right. it's you know it's a it's a matter of of personnel. So in that case, yeah, there you know we're likely to see. MS-11 fly maybe in December uh, on schedule, you know? I think that that's likely because, yeah, if this was just a ground crew issue, then there's nothing wrong with the hardware, just how mm -hmm. it was handled. Um, right. and that's maybe the guy who did that was the same one who drilled that hole. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you need to get rid of him. No, that's consistent with, you know, it has a really good track record. So that's why I was mm -hmm. kind of, you know, thinking people were maybe, of course, you got to do a, an investigation to make sure everything's, yeah. you know, good and safe. But... I still felt like some people were blowing this a little out of proportion. 
as though, you know, yeah. we should be rushing untested other spacecraft instead of just right. figuring out what this problem or, is. Or we should never trust Russia again, which also is overboard. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. Time to do some short and sweet. We got four, so not quite so short. And what is our first one, Ben? <laughs> first up, Hubble Space Telescope nears operational status. Yay! Hubble scientist Todd Lauer tweeted this week that Gyro 3, the backup that wasn't working as expected, is actually workable. Gyro 3 is one of the quote-unquote new gyros installed in 2009. Uh, using nitrogen to inject lubricant instead of normal atmosphere, the oxygen contained in which caused wire corrosion in the quote-unquote old gyros. It sounds like the issues encountered in the new gyro aren't actually deal breakers, and with additional characterization, HST should be good to go in three gyro mode yet again. Yay! And in sadder news, Paul Allen passes away. The co-founder of Microsoft, owner of the Seattle Seahawks, and founder of Stratolaunch passed away at the age of 65 due to complications from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. His interest in spaceflight led him to collaborating with Bert Rutan in the development of Spaceship One, which won the Instari X Prize in 2004. His next pursuit in spaceflight, Stratolaunch, was founded in 2011 and, despite several setbacks, is now approaching operation with its first launch expected sometime next year. So yeah, in 2019. So his legacy, I think, will launch. Rocket Lab has selected a U.S. launch site. Rocket Lab announced the selection of Wallops at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport as its first U.S. launch site. Several reasons factor into this particular launch site, such as existing infrastructure, a quieter launch manifest, which helps with scheduling launches, as well as attaining inclinations that complement those from the Mahia Peninsula. Rocket Lab plans to launch from Wallops in the third quarter of 2019 from Launch Complex 2, or LC2. This will be the company's dedicated pad, which they hope to be using on a near-monthly basis. And finally, Astra Space Rocket 2 is licensed for launch soon. So Astra Space recently aborted the launch of a Rocket 1, which was a suborbital rocket. Now they've been given a license from FAA to fly Rocket 2, which is currently flying without an upper stage, but it could potentially reach orbit. It's interesting to see this second version up and running without Rocket 1 actually making into the air, but we're hoping to see it fly very soon. Great names, Rocket 1, Rocket 2. I like it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. This week we got a long one from Ben Howard. Yes, a very good one. Yeah, a good one. Well, some of his corrections, I feel like we knew this and I thought we said it, but sometimes, you know, we're not the best at communicating yeah. what we do know. Well, so so the first one was about how I said that, you know, they didn't need the launch escape tower on Soyuz after certain point in the flight and i was scratching my head i was like i don't know maybe maybe they throttle down so they're accelerating less and uh, i i made it pretty clear that i had no idea why that was the case so ben hallert uh decided to clarify for us which is great so um he confirms that the launch weight uh or that the thrust to weight ratio uh starts low and increases as you'd expect which means that the acceleration gets higher and higher the reason that they have the launch abort tower is mostly because when you are on the ground or moving slowly, 
um, you need a lot of power to get away from the vehicle because if it explodes, the fireball is going to be moving upwards quite quickly. Technically, the vehicle could escape the first stage with just the engines on the shroud. Like it, it has enough to lift the vehicle away faster than the, than the rocket itself is accelerating. But you need additional power on top of that to escape the fireball. Once you are up in the air and moving very quickly um, with, you know, the atmosphere rushing around you, the fireball is pretty much going to be moving backwards only. And so all you need to escape is not an, uh, an expanding fireball. You just need to expand the top of the launch stack, right? That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, he also corrected... Uh, so I have number dyslexia. I also like don't understand what words mean sometimes. And, and I said that they had a, a shallow reentry uh, after the abort, but no, they actually had a steep reentry. And for some reason, steep and shallow, I can never remember which one means which. Huh. So really? They had a steep, yeah. So they had a steep reentry, which means that they were coming down closer to straight vertical. Um, a shallow, of course, would be a, a long stretch. So yeah, uh, higher G's because you um, get into the dense part of the atmosphere faster. This is something that should be familiar to Kerbal Space Program players. He also had something to say about commercial crew readiness. So I talked a little bit about this earlier in the show, how we're looking at a lot of paperwork to actually get crew dragging up in the air. Uh, Koenigsman, the VP of Mission Assurance over at SpaceX, said that they're ready to support a November or December flight of DM-1, a demo mission one, which is where they're doing an uncrewed flight. And he said that their limitations are, you know, NASA paperwork, like we mentioned. And then after that, we start getting into high beta angles. In mid-December, uh, that becomes an issue, uh, which is the basically the angle of the orbit to the sun. And then after that, vehicle traffic becomes an issue uh, in January. So it sounds like they're about ready to go. Um, Starliner, CST-100, um, has been suffering from a hypergolic link, uh, which Ben pointed out. And the interesting thing here is that if we end up not flying crew, let's say that we uh, decrew station and delay crew even longer, uh, it's going to give Starliner a, a lot of room to catch up on this issue and, you know, potentially beat Dragon to orbit. And that's going to be a, a big thing for the companies who can get into space first. Obviously, you know, you don't want to rush in a way that uh, endangers uh, missions or lives, but uh, that is a thing. Do you guys remember the last shuttle brought back an American flag and they want to refly it on the first uh, launch out of American soil. Am I remembering that properly? I don't recall that at all, but maybe. Okay. I don't recall that, but I remember just reading it recently. So yeah. Okay. That's that's a correct assessment. Yeah, they oh they, one they put it on station. Station and the idea, yeah, I guess is the first American one that kind of yeah. So it's called the Flag's Promise of Return. Uh, it's taped to uh, one of the doors on uh, Node Two. Oh, the hatch leading to Atlantis, so the forward, uh, the forward hatch mm. of uh, of Node Two, and so it's going to stay on station until an American uh, vehicle goes back, which is pretty cool. So whoever brings that back is is going to have some uh, cachet. Mm -hmm. So let me ask though, um, I didn't understand. Uh, I'm not re I'm not recalling why the high beta angles are an issue for getting a spacecraft to station. I believe it's just overheating, right? Um, without a chance to cool off. You basically are going to overheat your spacecraft. And so like 
shuttle went into um, the a barbecue roll or mm-hmm. a rotisserie roll to distribute that heat across the vehicle. I, I think that's I think that's the issue. If the spacecraft is docked to it, I'm just trying to think if maybe the station could put it in a shadow for some period of time. Yeah, it's getting mm-hmm. there that's the problem now. Those beta angles. Yep. <laughs> All right, so this one's going to be really fun. We're going to do our first meetup. Anybody who listens is welcome to come. Do RSVP. Just let us know if you're planning on coming, because if not, um, Dennis and I might switch and go to a more expensive restaurant. But I'm going to be flying to Phoenix in December, and uh, Dennis is pretty close to Phoenix. (laughs) So we're going to meet up on December 5th for dinner. We're going to be going to Four Peaks Brewing Company uh, in Tempe. Uh, This is the one on 8th Street, not the tasting room that's uh, farther away from the university campus. So yeah, just, just shoot us a tweet. I mean, you don't have to like you know, buy tickets or anything. Just like, let us know if you're planning on coming. So we know what to expect. Phoenix is hell on earth during the summer, but in December, it's actually quite nice. So <laughs> Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, that that night air is actually really nice. So we don't have a particular time. It'll be probably after five because I'm I'm there for a conference um, and I have to go do physical labor the next morning. Basically, um, I'm going to a uh, to a salvage yard to um, do some practical stuff. So I'm not going to be out super late, but you know, we're hoping for a good, a good couple of hours of, of food and food and beer. And yeah, let us know. Cause otherwise we're going to go to um, uh, Fogo to Chown. Eat ridiculous amounts of meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Brazilian steakhouse where they give you a little coaster. And so long as you have the green side up, they're just going to keep throwing meat at you. And so you have to flip the coaster to the red side. They have waiters dressed as gauchos who come around with meat on skewers. <laughs> and they also have a killer salad bar as well. That is true. Yes. So so again, that's on December 5th. Uh, it's a Wednesday. Let us know if you're interested in coming and hanging out. I'll, I'll have uh, probably magnets or stickers or something to give away at least. Yeah, should be a good time. Time to move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got two launches. What's our first one here? So our first launch uh, for this coming week is uh, Pegasus XL will be launching the Ionospheric Connection Explorer, or ICON. Uh, This is a NASA mission to study Earth's thermosphere and ionosphere, as well as the connection between space weather and, you know, surface weather on our planet. And it's a two-year long mission. So this will be launched on October 26th at 8.05 UTC with a window extending from 8 uh, UTC to 9.30 UTC, flying out of Cape Canaveral. This will be a horizontal launch. Yeah, because this is, I guess, the that's the launch window, but since it's being launched from a plane, I guess. Right. I mean, you can't really go there and see it, so mm-hmm. you can watch a plane lift off, I guess. Right. That's something. And uh, next up is on October 29th, which is the launch of an H-2A, and that's launching Khalifa Sat and GoSat 2. That is launching from Tanegashima in Japan. The launch window is 0408 UTC through 0420 UTC. So pretty small launch window there, just, uh, what, 12 minutes. And uh, KhalifaSat, that's an Earth observation satellite for the UAE, and it will provide high-resolution imagery of Earth to be used for various purposes, such as urban planning and area classification and monitoring of environmental change and aiding relief efforts for natural disasters. So that's all that KhalifaSat does. GoSat2 is a greenhouse gas observation satellite, so that's kind of cool. And this is a Japanese satellite dedicated to greenhouse gas measurement from space. Yeah, this is going to 
gather more information on global warming, which would be really good to know a little bit more about what's going on with Earth's atmosphere. So I guess, yeah. Yeah, we want I to mean, know exactly how we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Great. Now I have to bleep that, but you're right. <laughs> Probably more than we would care to know. So don't look. All right. So those are your upcoming space flight events. Which means it is time to do orbit the show. And we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. Big thank you to our brand new flight director level supporter, Michael Wells. Yay! For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that is all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.